Hello and welcome to a mobile edition of the Tree City Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Baker. And I'm Graham Moen. And uh, Andrew, you just got back from a fun vacation in uh, in California. Yes, I was in Los Angeles, California. More specifically, uh, Long Beach, Venice, a little bit of downtown LA, but some Korean barbecue, which was... I. I, I'm I'm just gonna go back tomorrow today. I think the Korean barbecue <laughs> alone was in the sunshine, and you know, it was a good time. It was yeah, a good I've, time. Heard, always, I've heard always, a lot about it. I love Ohio, but it's always good to get out and get some sun, and you know, just live your best life, as Cardi B would say. Especially um, a place completely different from Ohio. Indeed, and uh, you know what? The best part of this vacation was the fact that for three days straight, there was no basketball. And look, I love watching basketball. I really do. And I love watching the Cavs. But, you know, in the middle of the playoffs, sometimes it's nice to just have a break from the drama and the, and the Stephen A. Smith and, the, and, the, and the, all the people on Twitch. It's just nice to have a break from the drama and just not pay attention for a few days. And just, Especially after the, fir- and after the first two ser- games of the Cavs series. It was hard to even stomach watching sometimes. Yep. And that transitions us right into our, our podcast here. So we didn't podcast after the first two games. We wanted to, but, you know, the three-hour time difference, you have a life, I was in California, whatever. You know, we decided to be easier just to podcast today. And it could either yeah, be you should Cavs. get to enjoy your vacation, too. Right. And today could have either been a Cavs obituary or it could have been, oh, hey, this guy isn't falling. And I fully, I fully expected the Cavs would win game three. And I – you know, it's like, what do we say on the podcast after the Raptors series? We said, well, I said, I'm not going to speak for you, but I said before the season, after one month, two months, three months in the Indiana series, it doesn't. I've said the Cavs are going to go to the finals and they're going to lose there. I've said that from the beginning, and I have thought that regardless of the current result of any series, including this one being 2-0. And just because the Cavs won game three does not mean that they've just gotten out of the woods completely. If they lose game four, they're in deep trouble. But right. But that said, we have seen this story how many times? We have seen the Cavs get outplayed and look old and LeBron looks frustrated and he's not trying on defense and guys aren't making shots and the ball's not moving. And oh my God, this could be it. This could be the end of the LeBron era in Cleveland. Everyone hold it. Oh, and they win the next game and everything's fine. And, you know, I've just seen this so many times that I was not going to sit here and panic after the first two games. Like I said, doesn't mean that Cavs are advancing, but I, for all, uh, for, for my own opinion, was, was not going to sit here and panic about it because we've just seen this so many times. I was more concerned about game one, really, than game two. I mean, game two, they at least came out and played a good first half and then they just ha- they fell apart in the third quarter and that's just kind of what did them in. Game one, they just did not look like they had any type of rhythm whatsoever. And I thought they would maybe come out game one firing on better cylinders because they, like you said, they're an older team. They had that time of rest after the sweep of the Raptors. Maybe they get some time to actually rest and get themselves together and maybe actually be able to put together a good fight. And that was not the case very early in game one is that the Boston went out to a 19, 20 point lead in the first quarter. And that pretty much was just the Cavs got within about, 10 to 12 at some points in those games, but there was never really 
any feeling in my mind that they were going to come back and win that game just because and that'll be stuff that we go into just Boston just looked ready to go and they looked ready to challenge this Cavs team and they did not look afraid yeah I mean you know I I expected especially at home well so what we have in this series is two teams that are drastically better at home as compared to the road I think in Boston's case, that's because they're a younger team, and younger teams tend to do a lot better at home. And I think in the Cavs' case, that's because half the time the Cavs are on the road, they pretty much act like, well, we don't really have to win this one. We can win the home games. Yeah, but and, they have to win a they have to know, win a Boston game in the series. If the Cavs lose Game Four, come bite back to bite them in the ass. They didn't win one of the first two games. But look, if the Cavs win game four, it's a 2-2 series. All they got to do is win game six at home and win game five or seven on the road. Now, it's not like the Boston can't win on the road and the Cavs can't lose at home. But I think that the Cavs kind of showed in game three when they come out in a good mindset, LeBron is trying on defense, which, by the way, people keep forgetting that when LeBron really tries on defense, on defense late into the playoffs, he's still a goddamn terror. He was just destroying everything in that game on defense. Yeah. And got, got, he got away with a couple of fouls, but, eh, you know, whatever. And we'll get into uh, it more later, but I think the important thing was, and we talked about it off air, texting and t- just talking in general, Jason Tatum's been their biggest threat for them in terms of scoring. And I think the fact that they had LeBron on him for a lot of the game was important because he's not a super athletic player, but I think – his ability to score from almost anywhere on the floor, kind of like a Carmelo-esque type of score, was really important for the Cavs being able to settle him down because even though he is a rookie, he's been performing absolutely just – he's been incredible in these playoffs. And the future oh, yeah. the future for him is bright. I wouldn't surprise me if in the next three to five years he's in MVP discussions. Yeah. He's, he's just fantastic. And Jalen Brown has been breaking out. But, I mean – those are all small things. I think the most important things that we've talked about in this playoffs, I mean, we had those keys going into the series. My keys were just talking about who's going to do the scoring for Boston because, like we said, they don't have Kyrie Irving. They haven't had Gordon Hayward all season. And Al Horford's been amazing, but where are they going to get that secondary scoring? Is Jason Tatum going to continue to show up? Is Jalen Brown going to continue to show up? Is Terry Rozier going to be good at home and then sometimes struggle on the road, which has, we've seen in the last, first three games has been – the story is the Cavs performed much better at home and were able to stop those guard plays, which really was a big def- defining factor in the first two games of the series where the Boston guards just vastly outplayed the Cavs guards. Yeah. Um, it helps that George Hill decided that it was time to show up. Yeah. His That's first quarter, helps. his first quarter performance was huge for, I think, setting the tone for the team. Cause he had 11 points in the first quarter and he was making his shots and he was distributing. He was being aggressive, which we need him to be in for us to be able to perform well in the series and win this series. Yeah. And Jr is alive too. You know, every time that, every time that the media and the fans and whoever decides that, all right, this is it. Now Jr Smith is finally trash. He's been horrible. And don't get me wrong, Jr. was, like, just horrible the first two games. Just terrible. And George Hill wasn't much better. No, but we've seen Jr. rebound, especially at home, time and time again. And I think Jr. is just like the Cavs, where 
we've said this how many times in this podcast. You don't know what to expect quarter to quarter, game to game, that you don't have any idea what to expect with this Cavs team from game to game. Basically, just, you know, it's not this simple, but it's, you know, when the Cavs show up with a proper mindset and the right guys are being aggressive and the ball is moving and everyone's trying on defense, they're still pretty damn good. And yeah. That That's was the biggest the, the theme of this whole playoffs for the Cavs. And it's not to take any credit away from Boston for winning the first two games. Boston had a great game plan and they have a lot of good young players and they got it done and they were capitalizing on the fact that the Cavs kind of half-assed it. But, you know, if the Cavs are going to play at their peak or near their peak, they're still the probably the third best team in the NBA and definitely the best team in the East. I think, you know, you and me had a couple keys to this series and I think those have been, you know, pretty clear in the first three games that they that the keys do make sense. So one of my keys was turnovers. And you look at game three, in game three, the Cavs cleaned up their offense a lot, especially LeBron didn't turn it over a lot like he did in the first two games. Yeah. And all of a sudden, Boston didn't have an easy ability to score because Boston's not a great half-court scoring team. They've got a good head coach. And they've got a good offense but they don't have a singular superstar talent that can just get them points when they need it. I think a lot of times you've seen in game three when the Cavs were able to play tough the first 16 seconds of the shot clock or so, the last eight seconds of the shot clock, the Celtics were taking a lot of contested step-back shots in game three. A lot of mid-rangers too, which is very very different from their identity, which is cutting to the basket and moving constantly and getting those extra passes for the three-pointers. Yeah, once the Cavs were able to kind of snuff out their first couple actions, it, be, it you can see now that if the Cavs don't turn it over and don't give Boston that head start into their offense, it can be a lot harder for Boston to manufacture points because they have a lot of good young talent, but they don't have a lot of guys who are true battle-tested scorers yet. And, you know, that was kind of, that was one of your keys to the series is who's going to score all the points for Boston. And I think, you saw when the Cavs turned it over a lot in game one and two, Boston was able to get out and run and get into a better offensive rhythm and play with more pace. Yeah, they're but, very good at that. They're very good at pushing the ball, and their transition game gave the Cavs yes. heavy problems in the first two games of the series. That's honestly a lot of the reason why they did so well is they were able to keep moving the ball. And while Ty Lue wants the Cavs to play at a faster pace, I just the way this team is settled, I think it's better for them to be in the half court and to settle down, whereas – Boston wants to get out and run because they have those guys one through five that can run and make plays. Yes. I will say one thing. You just mentioned pace and that's apparently one of the big things that Ty Lue and the Cavs players and the Cavs coaching staff were stressing to each other after the first two games is pace. And I think a lot of people, when you say pace, assume that that means you want to get up and down the floor and do a lot more fast breaks and things of that nature. But I think pace doesn't have to be how many possessions you have in a game or how fast you get up the court. I think for the Cavs, the, diff- the reason that pace matters is on offense is this. So if you're watching games one and two, there were over and over again that the Cavs wouldn't even get the ball entered into the post until there was eight seconds in the shot clock. Yeah. They'd jog down the court. They'd start their play with 16 seconds left. They take some time to get in the post, and the Cavs tried to post up a lot in the first two games. They went away with, away from it a little more in Game Three, thankfully, for a little bit more of a motion offense. But you see, like 
if you're going to ISO LeBron or you're going to post up Kevin Love, et cetera, et cetera, if those plays aren't really going into motion until there's eight seconds left in the shot clock, that puts you in a situation where Kevin Love either has to take that shot or kick it out to someone who has almost no time to make a play. Right. LeBron has to score one-on-one or it's not happening. And I think game three, you could see that pace where the Cavs are, okay, 20 seconds on the shot clock. They're already moving. The ball's already moving. The Cavs have a lot more time to snuff out mismatches. They have a lot more time to cut around and try and get someone open. And I think that's where the pace is definitely a key for the Cavs. And that's what Ty Lue said after game two is like, look, we don't have to play a run and gun style because that's not how our team plays. But we can't take forever to get into our offensive sets and waste time because you're not going to have a productive offense if you're wasting all that time. And I think the Cavs did just immensely better in game three at that. Yeah, I think you saw that's something that's something they're definitely going to need to carry over the rest of the series if they are going to go back to the finals. Yeah, I mean, you saw Kevin Love in game three, and I think that's a great juxtaposition is you like you said, they weren't getting the ball into the post until there's about eight seconds left. And the way the Boston defense plays, they are very big on help defense and swarming and getting in there. And by the time Kevin Love got the ball in the post, there was two guys on him and he could not make the pass to the open man because the open man was usually far off in the corner. And yeah, or there was two seconds left in the shot clock. And he just had to shoot. Whereas in this yeah. last game, the best play that I saw, and obviously it was a wide open play, but the play where Kevin Love gets the ball at the top of the key, LeBron runs off ball behind three defenders and just gets a beautiful bounce pass from Kevin Love for a reverse jam from LeBron. That's That type of motion right there is what will also help LeBron get going. Because like I've said countless amount of times, LeBron is fantastic off the ball, and we saw that in Miami and in some instances in Cleveland. We don't see it as much as he did in Miami because there were bigger, there were better playmakers around him in Miami. But there, you see that movement that LeBron can do, and where, when he doesn't have to hold the ball eighty-five percent of the time, that gives him that unlocks a different part of his game where it just makes it so difficult to stop him because stopping LeBron on the ball is difficult. But if you only have to worry about stopping LeBron on the ball, that's going to create way less problems for a defense that is so good at moving and helping each other and switching on defense and really one through five some of their lineups are pretty much just switchable regardless when you have a Marcus Smart, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, Marcus Morris and Al Horford five I mean you're not really going to get that many favorable matchups all of those guys are capable of switching and guarding their man until help defense arrives yeah I mean you look at game three, Kevin Love had four assists, and that may not seem like a huge number, but I think when Kevin Love has more than one or two assists, it often shows the Cavs are running a better offense because, as we've discussed many times, we don't have to beat it you know, too, too much to death, but Kevin Love is a useful player beyond just shooting or posting up or rebounding. They can use him in the offense. So I think, like you mentioned, LeBron playing off the ball, there were multiple times that Kevin Love hit LeBron cutting to the basket. And when LeBron has the ball, he's not going to have an open path to the basket. The whole defense is going to be there waiting for him. But when he's off the ball and he can cut, oftentimes it's a lot easier for him to get a, a, an open layup. Yeah, he's getting like a full head of steam, which is making, yes. which when he has a full head of steam, there pretty much no one in the league can guard LeBron because he's right. and they have to amazing. And they have to stay up on Kevin Love when he has the ball because he can shoot. And Love is a really good passer, and he hit with LeBron with multiple alley-oops in game three because of that offense actually moving. And, you know, that's another one of my keys to this series that we had discussed 
on our preview podcast was Kevin Love and Al Horford. And I think game one and two, Al Horford was aggressive. Game one, Horford absolutely dominated Kevin Love, which is exactly what I predicted would happen. And it seems like the Cavs have finally discovered, okay, so... They can't put Love on Horford. That's just not going to work. Or at least they can only do it for minimal minutes. And when they do, they're going to have to help him out a little bit. Because Horford's length really, really bothers Love. And in game three, the Cavs pretty much had Tristan Thompson on the court the majority of Al Horford's minutes. And we've shown that Thompson gives Horford fits over and over again. He, he, you know, he'll get around him for rebounds. He'll staunchly defend him. And playoff Al Horford was back in game three. He basically didn't show up. He had like seven points, seven rebounds, something like that. I think the Celtics, And the, yeah. the, the more the Cavs can get Kevin Love away from Al Horford by using Thompson or even Larry Nance for a little bit, the better for Kevin Love. Because clearly guys like Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, Marcus Smart, Marcus Morris – Guys, yeah, those guys, especially Morris, I think, and maybe Ojale, can kind of battle with Love, but he's going to score points and he's going to be uh, involved in the offense when those guys are on him. When Horford's on him, his his ability to post up is kind of mitigated. And game three, the Cavs got a lot of points off of Kevin Love posting up or at the elbow, even independent of him actually scoring those himself. And I think. I think Thompson being on Horford and kind of tiring him out has been a big a, a big reason for that. Yeah, I mean, I think a big switch that the Cavs have kind of had to make because of also Aaron Baines being able to play pretty well in the series and being usable is Cavs have had to go bigger this series. Instead of having four shooters and LeBron a majority of the time, you have had to have a Larry Nance or a Tristan Thompson in the game and mitigate Al Horford's effectiveness or Aaron Baines being able to bang in the post and get those defensive rebounds that he gets a lot at the end of possessions. I think those big and those big second chance opportunities that Thompson and Nance create are huge things for the Cavs because that it gives them a chance to reset the offense. Like you said, run a play, have a little bit of pace, being able to have a fresh shot clock in the half court already where they're not wasting seven, six to eight seconds, just dribbling the ball up the court. They're able to get into an offense, move the ball, drive, be able to penetrate. And then, as you know, LeBron can make pretty much any pass on the floor, whether he's driving to the basket and then last second he has to throw a pass like he did last night to J.R. Smith when he was going to the left, was completely covered, and then at the last second chucks a pass over to J.R. at the top of the key on the right, and J.R. hits a three-pointer right in his face. Yeah, LeBron remains ridiculous. Those, um, those are so such big factors. And I think the fact – and like I said, the Cavs going big I think is going to be something that continues in this series – because I think that's just the only way you can combat Al Horford and the post play well, of the Celtics. Uh, yeah, I agree. It's kind of frustrating. It, sometimes with Ty Lue, there's things that are so obvious and that it takes the Cavs so long to figure them out. Like the Indiana series, the Cavs were getting abused on the boards over and over and over again, and the Pacers were getting to the rim at will, and – it took the Cavs basically until game seven to think they should try and play Tristan Thompson. And I said, and look, I'm not a genius. Okay. Trust me. Um, I said they should start Thompson before the Indiana season series even started. And it took them seven games. That seventh game, finally, they weren't dominated on the boards. And I think with this Celtic series, they started off game one by going to Kevin Love every time he had Al Horford on him. And it's like, look, that's not going to work. Is, it's not going to work. It's so obvious the Cavs' best matchup is to put Thompson on, 
on Horford. And I understand fully that four shooters around LeBron is pretty much unstoppable. But when the Cavs do that, they're A, basically punting on rebounding and defense, and B, accepting that the entire offense is going to just be LeBron trying to penetrate and kick it out. I think when you have Thompson out there, the Cavs are a better defensive team. They're a far better rebounding team. And I think the fact that Thompson doesn't really space the floor, I think it definitely hurts the Cavs' ability to get to the rack, especially LeBron. But when Thompson's out there, it kind of forces them to use Thompson as opposed to standing around. He can't just stand the perimeter and wait for the ball. When Thompson's on the court, he has to be setting picks and moving around. Otherwise, he's not effective. So I think playing bigger kind of forces the Cavs to go into more of, uh, you know, better offensive sets as opposed to just, here you go, LeBron, stretch the floor, let's stand around and watch. I think having a non-shooter like Thompson out there does hurt the spacing of the offense, but I think it has kind of forced the Cavs to accept, okay, we have to do more other than just waiting around for LeBron to make a move and passing it out. We actually have to run an offense, set picks, dive to the basket. And I think, you know, I think that that, there's a comfort level the Cavs have with Thompson, Love, LeBron, J.R., Corver, those guys being out there together to run a more cohesive offense. And yeah. I just don't get, you know, and like Jeff Green didn't play much in game three, thankfully, and Rodney Hood is out of the rotation completely now. And it just, it frustrates me that it takes so long for some of these decisions because once again, it's almost like, too late. I am not a genius. I'm not an NBA coach. I'm not qualified to be. But if I can tell you before the Indiana series that Tristan Thompson should be starting, and then they went back to Kevin Love at center in game one against Boston, and I, I can tell you Rodney Hood is terrible. He's not playing well. And they still tried to feed him minutes. And it's just – and I can tell you this, too. Larry Nance Jr. is a good enough player that he needs some minutes because the Cavs really need his length and athleticism. And his offensive rebounding. He's yes. Like, he's like, he's a Thompson clone almost. Like, yes. And if, if, if you start Thompson, that can make, that makes it so much easier to get to minutes for Larry Nance. Because if you're bringing Thompson and Nance off the bench, you can't play them together. So you're basically saying, if we're going to start small, we can't play one of these two guys. But those are two of the Cavs, probably six best players. So I think the, the, the rotations work drastically better when you cut out the majority of Jeff Green's minutes just get rid of Hood completely, obviously. Yeah. And start Thompson, and that way Larry Nance can play his 12 to 14 minutes off the bench, including playing Larry Nance with Kevin Love as the bench unit. Because game one and two, Ty Lue was playing minutes without LeBron or Love. Which is and just that, suicide. And that just meant that Jordan Clarkson was shooting every time. Yeah, and again, suicide. Like, I get it that there's a lot of nuance to these things, and one decision affects multiple aspects of the game. But some of these things are not that difficult. And that's the one thing I worry about the rest of this series is Brad Stevens is going to adjust these things quicker than Ty Lue, certainly. I feel like Brad Stevens almost over-adjusted, though, in game three. Like, he was giving Greg Greg Monroe minutes and other players. Yeah, he was – like Gershon, Gershon, Yabaselli, I don't know what he Like, I feel like he was, he adjusted too much in the third game of the series. He's like, all right, well, we won the first two games. Uh, what else can we throw at them? You're, the first right. two games worked. I don't know why you're trying to change anything. I understand that you can't run the exact same thing every time, but I think, and I think to go, to quickly go back to uh, 
to, like you said, the defensive help that Thompson brings. It's not just the individual defense. It's the versatility on defense, which the Celtics have been killing us with because of their ability to switch and their ability to move everything. This is the modern NBA now, and that's what's happening in a lot of games, and especially in the Western Conference Finals where you're seeing a lot of positionless basketball. The Cavs are almost not built to be in this generation of basketball right now because their players are done for very specific things. They aren't able to switch on defense, but Thompson gives you that little bit of extra switch on defense. He can guard someone on the perimeter when they run a pick and roll with Rozier and Horford and switch on to Rozier. And then LeBron can go to Horford or George Hill can guard Horford when he's running around. And then when you get into the post, you can switch off. I think the defensive versatility is incredibly important because I think that's what gives the Cavs such good defensive presence is they can switch on guys and not just be like, okay, well, you have to stay on this guy. You have to stick with him or you're going to get burned. That's the biggest problem for the Cavs is that when the first two games, if someone got burned, that was it. But with Thompson in the game and him playing more minutes, he can switch on basically every position and stay in front of people. We've seen this for years that he has the foot speed to stay with a point guard of Terry Rozier's or Marcus Smart's quickness or has the physicality to bang with Al Horford or Aaron Baines. That one player in itself helps the versatility of the Cavs defense immensely. Yeah, I agree about your point about the Cavs not really being built to play modern basketball. They're 100% not. And Kevin Love at center is a useful lineup to create offense, especially against a team like the Raptors where they had Jonas Valanciunas who could score in the post. But when Valanciunas was scoring for Toronto, it wasn't really lifting their entire offense up. You know, he was getting his buckets, but the Cavs were pretty content to let him do that. When Al Horford gets going for the Celtics, that really kickstarts their entire offense. He's a lot better passer and a lot better shooter than a guy like Valanciunas. Right. So against, against a team like the Raptors, the Cavs aren't really going to get hurt by Kevin Love going to center. And, and additionally, Toronto doesn't really have that many good wings, so LeBron could just tear them apart. Boston's a completely different team to where if you go love at center, you're going to get beat up on the boards. Al Horford's going to feast, and the Celtics are still going to have enough wings. They can kind of stick on LeBron to hassle him enough. And that's kind of what you saw in the first two games, a lot of that. But, uh, you know, in addition to that, I think ideally the Cavs would have this modern offense, but they don't really have the personnel for it, and they don't have the personnel to be playing rotations like that. Who are the Cavs' best players right now? The, I can probably tell you who the six are. LeBron. Okay, LeBron, Love. Love, Thompson, George Thompson, Hill. George Hill. J.R. Smith. J.R. Smith. And either Corver or Nance. It's your Kyle player. Corver and Larry Nance. That's seven players, okay? And then you bring so Jeff three Green of, on as the okay. eighth man. Of, the, of those seven players, LeBron, Love, Thompson, Nance. Those are – LeBron's not a big guy, but – you know, he plays mostly power forward in reality, some small forward, whatever. Nance pretty much only plays center. He's a smaller center, but he's a modern center, you know. Yeah. Thompson and Love are power forwards, okay? So if you're not going to be starting Thompson or playing Thompson a lot of minutes, you're not going to be able to get to Larry Nance. And that means you're going to play a lot more of – Jeff Green. Jeff Green. Chetty Osman. Chetty Osman. Jordan Clarkson. And those guys are not as good as – and that's the whole point. So – if George Hill – and that's why George Hill is also important because if George Hill can kind of create offense like he did in game three, especially in the first quarter, then you don't have to play small because 
if, if George Hill is going to actually be a point guard and help run the offense and be a functional part of the Cavs offense, then that is a massive deal because that's the one big problem you'll have if you go with Thompson and Love up front and LeBron, you know, is that you don't really have a secondary ball handler. But George Hill was able to awake from whatever slumber he was in and be a secondary, secondary ball handler. I think that is the Cavs' best chance in this series and in general is to play kind of more to their identity and not try to play small because – And that's on the I think, offense. I think right? against yeah. teams like Boston and Indiana, that's not how the Cavs are built to win. Against Toronto, that's fine. You can play small. But I think it's pretty obvious that playing bigger, despite how the NBA has played today, is the Cavs' better chance in a series against Boston. And I, I do wish it wouldn't have taken this long, but, you know, that's what happens when your coach is – one of the slowest coaches to make adjustments in the NBA. So, And even if the Cavs do make the finals, whichever team they play, Houston has Clint Capella and a lot of versatile wing players. So in that sense, you could play big to try to offset Clint Capella. But if you're playing the Warriors, the Kevin Love lineup's okay. But in this series right now, where you're playing a team that's very big and very long vers- vers- and versatile, I think Thompson starting and playing heavy minutes is a big deal because they are playing Baines. They are playing... Horford a lot of minutes like you have to be able to play bang with these guys because like they said in the first few games they just straight out beat us up they were just killing us on the board the first few games you might be able to get away with that against Golden State where they're playing a JaVel McGee or Zaza Pachulia or even if they go with their Hampton five where they have Draymond Green at the center you could get away with that but not in the series where you're playing against a team as big as Boston yes Golden State has six centers and they're all bad but yeah I think that's the point, you know, is, is the Cavs have to be better. And I think they're finally starting to figure this out at changing their, their, their rotations based off their opponent, because I don't think the Cavs are good enough to just do the same thing every series. You know, I think obviously an NBA team wants to stick to, it's a philosophical thing of, do we stick to doing what we're best at, or do we stick to doing what's going to counter our opponent? But in this case, the Cavs haven't really proven to be a great small ball team. They can do it against teams that don't have a lot of size, like Toronto. But teams like Indiana and Boston, it's not going to go as well as the Cavs think it's going to go because they're going to get beat up on the boards and they're not going to be that good on defense. And I think I really have liked the Nance and Love leading the bench unit. And yeah. I think that there's a move that you would like to make at point guard in that unit, and I want you to explain why. I think they should replace Calderon with Clarkson and give him the minutes because I just think Calderon... You're saying give Calderon the minutes, yeah. Give Calderon Clarkson's minutes, just sit Clarkson down because Clarkson is not trying to create at all in that second unit, and we need another creator in that second unit. Calderon is able to initiate an offense, and he's a veteran. He is able to understand what's going on in the game, be able to make the right passes. He is a competent three-point shooter. If we can just make sure that we... And still it in him that, okay, we want you to shoot sometimes. We need to make sure that you're shooting so that way people can't just sag off of him. So that way when he creates plays, he just gets stuffed up in the paint. I think Clarkson at this point, the scoring at this point we saw with the Cavs is not – he's not necessary if the Cavs are playing at the right level and being able to move the ball and do things. He's kind of just redundant in a second unit where – if Kevin Love's the only ball creator in that unit, you're going to have problems because if you Kevin Love would have to be the ball creator and the main scorer in that unit, whereas Calderon not, might not be the better passer out of him and Love, but Calderon can at least initiate some offense. And if you're playing a second unit with 
Calderon and J.R. Smith and Jeff Gre- and Jeff Green and Larry Nance and Kevin Love and Larry Nance. That's something. Okay. okay. Larry Jeff Green should literally never, ever, ever be playing anything other than power forward for the Cavs. When Jeff Green plays the three, the offense is a disaster because he can't really create off the dribble. Or let's he say Corbett. A little let's bit, a little bit but not much. He can't run point at all. He can't really shoot. Look, against other teams, Jeff Green will be a perfectly reasonable – Jeff. if we play the Warriors, for example, if we get that far. Or, or even or the even, Rockets. Or even the Rockets, Jeff Green will have a more important role. But he cannot be playing the three because that will – really kill the Cavs offense. And I think to your point about Calderon, I would give Clarkson another chance for this reason. So if that bench unit is going to be Love and Nance, and you're going to pick a point guard, and then you're probably going to have, you know, probably like JR and Corver. Yeah, probably or, those two. Or maybe, you know, or maybe, God forbid, Jeff Green, or even maybe Jetty Osman. I think that, I think Clarkson... The thing with Clarkson is this. He can score, but too often he has been relegated to just shooting step-back jumpers while Kevin Love watches. But I think the bench unit so often will feed Kevin Love in the post, but they don't have to only post up Kevin Love when they have the bench unit out there. I think if they get kind of more like the starters do with Kevin Love, where he's involved in the offense besides just posting up, I think that could help Clarkson. And I think that uh, running pick and roll with Clarkson is a very very familiar thing for him. I think that could help him create a little bit more because I think that if you play Calderon, I think the Cavs might struggle to score because I think Calderon's better if he's playing, you know, with LeBron type where he can kind of just set up the offense and get out of the way. I think if you're playing that bench unit with Love, I, I just think Clarkson hasn't really been good. But I think if you he just jacks it up every time. Yeah, I think if you use Love a little more creatively, that could give a chance to get Clarkson going with some cuts off the ball and some pick and roll with Larry Nance. But either way, I'm glad they're not playing a lineup without LeBron or Love because those have not been good. But Yeah, like that just makes no sense. Like, do the Rockets ever play a lineup without Harden or Paul? No. Yeah. Did the Warriors play a lineup with none of their big four on the floor? No. Like it just, well, it just doesn't make sense. Like why would you? Yeah. Like why would you do that where you're not at least at one point staggering your minutes and playing one of your two best players on the floor at all times? Yeah, I think it's been I think it's been a way to guarantee LeBron some rest too because you know LeBron will that can give the Cavs like three minutes of LeBron you know sitting sitting yeah. on, the, on the bench. And I think it's pretty obvious that if you can get LeBron at least like six minutes three, of rest. Like six minutes of rest for the game, five or six minutes, he's going to be a lot better player than if he. Because if LeBron has in his mind, I'm playing the whole game. He's he not going to try. Yeah, he will take breaks on defense because you know obviously. But I think if you can say, "Look, LeBron, you're going to get these three minutes because we have Kevin Love out there. We're going to have a guy who can kind of be the fulcrum for our offense." You get a lot better version of LeBron. But that's kind of the end. You know, end of the day. To go back to what we said off the bat is. If the Cavs try really hard and they have some pace to get into their offense properly and LeBron's trying on defense and they're communicating, the Cavs are going to beat the Celtics. And if they don't, they're not. Again, the Celtics are going to play a lot better in game four than they played in game three most likely. 
But I think the Cavs have kind of figured out a couple of things like we've talked about that can, you know, be important things in this series. And I think a couple of them are things that you and me told them before the series even started. But, you know, um, I mean, yeah, series the rest of the way. There's the West Coast, uh, West Coast, Western, Western Conference, Conference Finals. Bloodbath between the uh, Rockets and Warriors. I'm going to be watching that tonight. Yep. I think we're probably going to come back and podcast sometime in the next week, probably after game four or five of the Cavs series and kind of reassess the situation. And I think we'll probably touch more on the uh, Western Conference side then. This one's already pretty long as it is. Um, you know, we'll see. Yeah. One more but, thing you know, before we go. I go think, ahead. I think. You know how the Cavs just, like I said, with defensive versatility, the Cavs just don't really switch a lot of guys. Why not have the guards switch off and play against each other's primary assignments? Why not have Jr. on Rozier and George Hill, who's a longer guy, guard Jalen Brown? I haven't seen much of that this series, and I think that can be a big thing because Jalen Brown is their second best player right now behind Tatum, which or behind Horford, which is crazy to say, but... I mean, you have to be able to guard those guys. And if Jalen Brown gets going, that's when it's been the biggest issues is his athleticism and his be able to, ability to drive to the rim. I think George Hill could stifle some of that. And I think it could also take pressure off JR, who could just spend some of his time guarding the perimeter on Rozier. I just don't understand why the Cavs haven't tried to switch those guys and just let them switch off on each other for a few minutes at each quarter, just switch assignments for a few minutes. Yeah, the Cavs should pretty much be switching everybody except Kevin Love. And I think that's for the most part what they've been doing. But it's going to be, you know, it'll be interesting, as always, with the Cavs. You, you never know. Game four could be a 30-point win or a 30-point loss. Who knows? It's the Cavs. I'm saying if the Cavs but, lose, then we'll start talking about maybe more, like, big picture things. Like, is this Cavs team going to stay together? Is LeBron going to leave? Is, yep, it, and we can have we can have a we can have targets for their lottery pick if LeBron stays, if LeBron goes, et cetera, et cetera. I'd say the there's a, there's going to be a lot to talk about in the next couple months with the Cavs, one way or another. I still think they're going to go to the finals and lose there, as I've said the whole season. But we'll see what Boston and the Cavs have in store for uh, Game Four tomorrow night. Uh, until next time, check out TreeCityRecords.com at TreeCityRecords on Twitter. Check out my Twitter at abaker underscore sports. Check out Graham's Twitter at G-T-M-O-H-A-N. And we'll see what the Cavs do. Until next time, I'm Andrew Bacon. And I'm Graham Owen. Thank you for listening. Peace. Peace.